Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has three years of law enforcement analysis experience. He helped establish the first digital forensic lab for Clayton County Police Department just outside of Atlanta, Georgia. And he also helped establish the info sharing network called the Southern Crime Analyst Roundtable. He went from the Navy to Fire Department to Police Department, and soon he will be going on a super secret analyst mission. Please welcome Jason Wilkins. Jason, how are we doing? Hey, thank you, Jason. You can't forget my name. <laughs> no, no, that, that's, I can't mess up that first name. It would be really bad if I did, but it's so great to talk with you. Looking forward to talking about your contributions to the profession and that and just a little bit about that super secret analyst mission that I just mentioned. I know that there's not a lot of details that you're going to be able to give us, but I am still intrigued by this idea. <laughs> yeah, so, we'll have to uh, we'll have to circle back a year from now, and maybe I can give a little more. Yes, yes. Well, I do try to do a where are they now segment from time to time. <laughs> so I'll definitely have to put you on the list for late next year on this, but. All right. Well, how did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? Well, like, like so many of your other listeners, that I've, I've lived and listened to your podcast for a couple of years now. And I started at the Clayton County Police Department in 2019. I've been listening to your show since about 2020 sometime. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And, <laughs> yeah, I, I love the show. And I love listening to how people got to the profession and how people, you know, took these circuitous paths and finally ended up somewhere that they can feel passionate about and, you know, like they're giving back to their communities in, in whatever way they are. And, and that's what happened for me. So I started out in the U.S. Navy in 1995. I did five years as a quartermaster on a surface amphibious ship. And I wanted to get into intelligence analysis, but that didn't work out. I ended up getting out of the Navy instead. And a buddy of mine back here in Metro Atlanta was already working as an officer for the fire department. And he said, come on, man, I can get you on. And so I went and applied and went through all of the fire academy and joined the fire department. I worked there for 14 years as a firefighter slash EMT slash hazmat tech slash rescue technician. So, I mean, I had all the slashes. If they were offering training, I was taking it, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, so which did you find more difficult? The basic training that you went through the Navy or the, the training that you went through to be a fire to fire? I, it's got to be the military. I mean, <laughs> anybody can tell you their horror story it's about boot camp. And, you know, at least with the fire academy, I got to go home at night. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> But I wouldn't, I wouldn't have traded it for anything in the world. I have two sons that are currently enlisting in the military, and I'm proud of them, and I'm glad to see them, you know, giving back and, and fulfilling their sense of purpose. And so I look forward for great things from them. But uh, after the fire department, I while, actually, while I was in the fire department, I got my degree in criminal justice because I wanted to get into law enforcement. Mm-hmm. I knew that. Just working in the fire department, working so so close with the police department, I knew that I wanted to get into law enforcement, and I was already such a computer nerd 
as, <laughs> as a hobbyist. You know, I was playing around with Linux, Ubuntu Linux, and building computers and things of that nature. And so I, I decided when I figured out and learned that digital forensics was a thing mm-hmm. in law enforcement, then I I went and looked for a degree program that might be able to give me a path to digital forensics. And they didn't have any at the time, not mm-hmm. in, not before 2010. So I had to kind of create my own. And I went to Iowa Central Community College. I finished my two-year degree in criminal justice. And then I got I went immediately into another two-year degree program with them in computer networking. And I figured, hell, I'll just combine the two and, you know, work and maybe go apply at GBI to work in their digital forensics lab. But at that time, they didn't want anybody that didn't have experience, even though you had the education. Mm-hmm. So that didn't work out. And instead, I used my computer networking degree to get a job as a network analyst for a multinational distributor at Carlson. And I, I kind of I lost my sense of mission at that point, mm. And I didn't feel like I was sort of giving back to the community in that way. What type and of work were you doing with them for them? It was just, you know, network analysis on their distribution center in their their warehouse. And it just wasn't it wasn't as fulfilling to me. And, you know, some people are just wired differently. Some people really have to feel like they are making a difference in their community and in their world. And that was that was me. You know, I just spent all those years in the military, all those years in the fire department and and just giving back to my community was what I wanted. So I went out and applied at the police department when I saw that they had a crime analyst position open and it was a pay cut. But. Mm -hmm. I felt like I would get more fulfillment from that. Mm-hmm. So I signed up, did the application, went through the, the interview process, and come to find out later, there were almost 15 other applicants with master's degrees Wow! that, that I actually beat out for the position. And for whatever reason that is, I don't know, but I, I believe that when, you know, fate opens a door, you walk through it. Yeah. So I went in and I started learning everything I could about crime analysis. I wanted to be the best crime analyst that I could be. And we were a small department. There was only one other crime analyst there, and she was fairly new. So I wasn't able to get a whole lot of training from her because she was so focused on everything that she had had on her plate as the only analyst for over a year mm-hmm. um, because they, they had more analysts prior to that, but those people had moved on. And what was she her was name? Stuck what, what is her name? I don't know if she wants to say, but <laughs> her name was Renee Edmondson. Okay. But she, so she wasn't, you know, able to give me a whole lot of training. So I had to go out and seek it out however I could. And this was pre-COVID. Right? Mm-hmm. This was pre-Teams, pre-Zoom, and you had to go physically to a location like Virginia mm-hmm. and be put up in a hotel, take these classes, or, you know, wait until they had them offered at the Public Safety Training Center in Georgia, now everything's online. It's great. If there's one thing that's positive that came out of the pandemic, it was that so much training is available online. And it just wasn't that way at that time. So I started reading everything I could. The DOJ has put out all kinds of publications, Crime Analysis for Problem Solvers in 60 Steps. I loved that book. The the sequel, Intelligence Analysis, for problem solvers that was uh, ronald clark i think was one of the authors yeah and john eck john eck yes yes and i I loved those books those became my bibles and i you know i i learned about journey to crime theory from those books 
And they just made me spin off and want to, you know, read more and, and get more in depth on each topic. You know, th- those books are set up to give you the, you know, the, the bird's eye view of each different technique, but they were a great stepping off point for me to just dig in and find whatever training I could. And I, I loved presenting every week. We had to do an intelligence briefing to the executives for, from our department, as well as other neighboring agencies. They would meet every week for an intelligence briefing. And it was my job as one of two analysts to give that briefing. We took turns, Renee and I. All right, a couple, couple of follow-up questions there before we move on then. So I, I find it interesting that you went from the fire department to the police department because historically there's this there's this sibling rivalry between the two departments. Did you did you get much flack from your fellow firefighters about you wanting to seek a a criminal justice career and then end up at a police department? Honestly, no. Yeah. Be- because we had a lot of firefighters at my department that were once police officers oh, okay. and, vice, and, and vice versa. So in at least in the metro Atlanta area, I can't speak for anywhere else. The fire department and the police department work together very closely, oh, okay. um, especially since since 9-11 and the, you know, the, the, the national incident based system. Everybody has to work together more closely. So. I didn't get a lot of flack. We still kind of tease each other, yeah. sort of like when I was in the military and, you know, you have Navy versus yeah. Marines. Like, oh, how does that crayon taste? You know, <laughs> sort of things like that. We just kind of it's, – it's healthy, healthy sort of ridding yeah. each other. But, yes, it was, it's a good time. It's yeah. all great people. Everybody's, you know, working for low pay to do something that they feel like they are making a positive difference in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And and you said GBI earlier. That's Georgia Bureau of Investigations, right? Correct. Okay. For the training then, did you was there one or two particular trainings that you found to be really helpful? Well, I got lucky and, and the Public Safety Training Center was offering crime analysis and they only do this once every couple of years. Mm-hmm. And it just happened to be Right after I came on, well, a couple months after I got I started, and Steve Gottlieb was the instructor for my crime analysis class, and it was a great class. I learned a lot from him. I kept in contact with him on LinkedIn. He is always ready to offer whatever assistance he can and answer any question he can. He's never standoffish. He's just <laughs> there. He's just there to help. That's that's what he does. <laughs> he is. He, he's fantastic. He really is. But he is such to me. He's such a character. He's almost like a character that you would find in a novel. Like he is. He is very distinct. And when you hear his yes. voice or you can see him covering in the conference, you just know who he is. He's very funny. He had us all, all laughing in class. It was it was a very fun class. All right. All and right. I also took intelligence analysis, the the Fiat class, the Foundations and Intelligence okay. Analysis, and Sheila Dorn was the instructor in that class, and she is the president of the International Association of Intelligence or Law Enforcement Intelligence Analysts. Yeah, yeah. Ilya. Yeah, I had Sheila on the program. She is fantastic. What segment of the Fiat program did you like the most? I liked the the way that we had to group together and work on an individual case. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we'd go together in our, our teams and we would do the analysis together as a team. It went, after Renee left the 
Clayton County Police Department, I was like she had been before me, the, the only analyst left holding down the fort. And I, I love working as a part of a team, mm-hmm. as a part of a network in a group, you know, it's so much easier to bounce ideas off of people. And that was probably my favorite part of Fiat was just the, the group training. Yeah. So it, it is nice. I know they've tried to make that more of a, a, a web-based class, but there is something about being in the same room and working through all that, all that that class has to offer in a classroom setting. And I have had the benefit of having taken it both ways because I also took FIAT through NW3C. And it was the exact same course and same course material, but taught through the web-based online version through NW3C. It was live instructor, so it wasn't on demand. Mm. But you're, and we would, you, we would still do our breakouts, but it's, you would go to a breakout room and work together. You know, there you couldn't hear or see the other groups like we could in class. And that might actually have benefited us really without the distraction. But so, yeah, I took Fiat both in person and online. Either way, it, it's work, it, it works great. And I think NW3C has really created something of value for the law enforcement analyst because so much of their training is available online. You can do it in person or in online. And, and that really helps for a lot of agencies that can't afford to send their analyst off for yeah. a week or more at a time. Yeah. It is it is nice. So you you found both to be to be beneficial and the the online version. You didn't feel that you you missed much by it being online versus in person. No, not really. And I've also taken several FBI online intelligence courses. They have a ten week program through the FBI Academy that I completed, and and so I kind of got a feel for it and, and used to the online training environment. And so I, I really do think that that is going to be the future of training for mm-hmm. law enforcement analysts. Now, my department actually has a police academy within it. So other agencies will send their recruits to my police department to go through the academy and get their training. So not only is Clayton County training their own. And one thing that I talked about with the chief was eventually down the road, perhaps modeling it sort of like the FBI's academy where you have two different paths and you have the police officer and the analyst. Mm -hmm. And so you have analysts that that other agencies can send their analysts here to get training and we'll see how it goes. He liked the idea. Maybe I'll come back after my uh, one year stint overseas and, (laughs) and see if I can't help him out with implementing that. All right. Interesting. Okay. So let's get into some of the tasks that you you did. You're taking all this training, you're gathering all this knowledge. What kind of tasks, what issues are you dealing with at Clayton? Well, it is a Metro Atlanta County Police Department. So because it's a county police department, they deal with a lot more than just the city agencies. You know, most of the crime is actually occurring outside of the, the smaller city jurisdictional areas and but they all work together so the city agencies and the county agencies and the sheriff's department all work together very closely sharing information to try to negate the the crime patterns however they can before i left we were you know communicating on teams with other city agencies we were you know sharing our crime statistics and information so that we could try to determine where those patterns overlap 
map the boundaries. You know, criminals, obviously, they don't see political boundaries. They just mm -hmm. see opportunity. So they would cross over from the county to the city to another city to another county. And that is where, in the law enforcement game, networking is key. You Absolutely. have to have communication with other agencies, communication with other analysts, communication between officers, and especially between the leadership. And I think that where that fails is usually where you'll most likely see the, the jurisdictions that have the most problem with crime. Hmm. Interesting. All right. And then, so you, but as I mentioned in your intro, you were able to help establish the digital forensic lab there at the police department. That fell in my lap. Okay. So how did, how did I, that come to be? I got very lucky. I, like I said, I, I got hired on to be a crime analyst mm -hmm. and I had always wanted to get into digital forensics. I, I never told anyone at the department that I wanted to do that. It was not my suggestion that we get into digital forensics. They actually asked me if I had, because they knew about my computer networking degree, they wanted me to help build an intranet site for the department because they had a very outdated intranet site and they wanted a better one. So mm -hmm. I made one for them that was much more current and they saw that I was able to do that. So they asked, well, if, if he can build a website and maintain it, then maybe he can, you know, take the training and get into digital forensics. And so they put me through magnet forensics annual training pass and I took every class that they offered. I I took every free class that I could find. There are several there's classes on digital forensics from the Texas A and M engineering school that is free law enforcement. I went to aboutdefer.com and they've, they've got all kinds of training on that website that, that is free. And I would just, I'm, I'm voracious when it comes to training, when it comes to reading. You know, when I'm in the car driving one hour home, I'm listening to podcasts. <laughs> you know, I'm not listening to music. I, I, I want to feed my brain with everything that I'm trying to learn because I want to be an expert in whatever it is that I'm, I want to do, you know, as fast as I can. And I'm just, I turn into a sponge. So, I, like I said, it, listening to your podcast, listening to other podcasts, reading yeah. as much as I could find, taking as much training as I could. Yeah, well, I'm glad you're listening to podcasts while driving the car and not reading books. Yeah, correct. <laughs> <laughs> so, I guess for maybe the typical analyst that may not know the ins and outs of digital forensics, what would you want him or her to know about digital forensics? Well, there's a very close relation between digital forensics and the intelligence function, function in a law enforcement agency because you have, you're, you're, you're digging through mobile devices trying to find evidence of crimes. Well, you know, those Crimes are a lot of a lot of times they're connected. They actually have tools that are created by the, uh, the forensics manufacturers, software manufacturers that will find links between different images of phones that you have in your database. And so you can do link analysis, things of that nature. So it's really important that whoever is doing digital forensics is very, very close to the intelligence analysis function in the agency. In my case, it was all of the above. I was sort of like a Swiss army knife for Clayton County. I, I did crime analysis, I did intelligence analysis, and I did digital forensics analysis, and I maintained the websites. So I, 
I wore a lot of hats, and I loved every minute of it. I, I wouldn't have traded it for the world. I, I felt like they trusted me with, you know, different aspects of the job. And while there may have been a lot on my plate, I knew that it was because they trusted that I could do it. And that made me feel good about myself. And I was thankful to have the opportunity. Mm, great. Let's get into some stories now, your analyst badge story, because one of them does deal with digital forensics. Okay. Yeah. Well, in one, I have a couple of stories. In one of them, there was a Metro Atlanta burglary group that had a very identifiable MO. They always went in the same way. They used the same tools. There was always the same number of people. They, they didn't always use the same vehicle, but they used the same kinds of vehicles. And so because other agencies were putting out these bolos and we could see that there were correlations, we decided to network with the other analysts. And I guess at this I could talk about the Southern Crime Analyst Roundtable at this point because that was how we did it. When I got invited to the Southern Crime Analyst Roundtable's first meeting, which was a group, a networking information sharing group that was started by Coweta County Sheriff's Department. And I went to that and I, there was, everybody was there. We had, we had federal analysts there. We had people from Department of Corrections, people from different agencies. And it was great because you get so many different perspectives from so many different agencies and, and different analysts. And we were all able to share our contact information. And, you know, this was at that time, it was before Teams was in existence or it might have been in existence, but nobody was using it at that time, at least not in the police department. Mm -hmm. And so we were using SharePoint and the, the sheriff's department had a page where we could communicate with everybody. And we used that network to talk about the different cases that each agency was working that was similar. And we, we put together a spreadsheet online that made, I made it shareable for everyone in the, in the group. And if you had a call come in that matched the MO, that matched the description of the, of the burglary group, then go ahead and put all that information into that spreadsheet and that way everything was uniform. And then we had after we had a hundred cases, we did analysis on that and we discovered, you know, that there was a, a more common time, a more common day, and a more common area that they were most likely to hit. And so that agency was notified and they were able to increase their patrols at that time in that area. And I'm coming into work one day and I hear on the news that there was a pursuit overnight. And four people were arrested who had been part of a burglary ring, and it was a, a success. Wow. So, so how long was this going on? They had actually they had been in operation for several years prior to me coming into the mm -hmm. police department, and I, I think that the oldest case that I added to the spreadsheet after we went back and added previous cases was two years prior to me joining in 2019. So they, they had been operating for about four years. Oh, wow. But so they had been hitting many different areas all over North Georgia. Yeah. Why, why do you think they were able to be so successful? And when I say that, I mean, when you go four years of burglaries, over a hundred, that's success for lack of a better word. I really can't say why it was allowed to go so long. I think that a lot of people thought maybe that it was just random 
Mm-hmm. And, of course, when you start doing that statistical analysis and utilizing other agencies' data as well as your own, that randomness really starts to shrink down into something more analytical. And mm-hmm. you can see that there are patterns that are not so random. Yeah. And so I think it was just the absence of having all the other ag- surrounding agencies' data that didn't help with the individual analysts from those agencies being able to come up with a, a plan of attack. Huh. That's interesting. And how many different jurisdictions did they did they hit roughly? Do you know? I would, I'm going to say, I remember the, I'm, I'm picturing the graph and the list of cities. And I know we had more than 50 cities. Wow. So it was, it was all over North Georgia. Huh. That is that is interesting, and so that that case is still being adjudicated, correct? So we don't know the full ending to the story. Correct, because as I said, and you said, I've only been doing this for three years, and two of those years were pandemic years, and so as as everybody knows, court was not in session for those two years, and so they are so backlogged on their cases that they're only just now getting to cases that they were supposed to have seen in 2019 and 2020. Yeah. So a lot of things are still left open. And that brings me to the other stories that I had. You know, one was a serial offender. And after reading that crime analysis for problem solvers in 60 steps and reading about the journey to crime theory, I thought, well, let me use a free tool, Google Earth, and create one mile radius rings around each known incident of this particular offender. And it turned out that where those rings intersected was the area, the apartment complex area that the offender was ultimately caught living at. Hmm. They were able to increase patrols in that area, and through a field interview contact, they made contact with somebody who was on a hiking trail after midnight, and that name matched somebody who had... I'm trying to be vague with it because of the case. They who had actually applied to our academy. Wow. In ah. a, a previous year, and they flunked out. They went. They went UA. And because of that name, and because of that correlation, they were able to find a photograph, and that photograph matched the victim statements and the drawings that were done by our artist. Yeah. And this and is a, this is a serial rapist situation, correct? Yes, and because of DNA evidence that connected them to the victims, they were also able to make a positive ID on that person. But like I said, that that case is still pending. Hmm. Oh, that's that's interesting. I I like how you applied the the concepts from class into real world scenarios. And well, that was just you know that's one leg under the table. Yeah. Um, the real the real detective work was done by some great detectives that that connected the dots and put them together. You know, as analysts, we provide our analysis to someone who makes a decision. Mm-hmm. And the detective utilizes your analysis, and whether it helps him or not, you might not ever know. You know, it may be something that the detective says, okay, thank you, and pushes aside because he's got all these other bits of evidence that make the picture make more sense to him or her. So all we can do is offer our analysis suggestions, recommendations. Mind you, I had only been as an, working as an analyst for a couple of years, so it's still you still have to get over the, the hump of, well, 
we've been police officers for 20 years. We understand law enforcement. You're new to this. And I, that, that's a very valid argument. So all I can do is provide them with my analysis, hope that it helps them in some way, and be available to them if they have questions. Hey, this is Mary Craig. My public service announcement for the listeners is irregardless is not a word. It may have been recognized by Webster's Dictionary in 2020, but it is still not a word. It's regardless. Hi, this is Dr. Carlina Orozco from the Tempe Police Department, Arizona State University. And my public service announcement is that correlation does not equal causation. If you find that certain things are occurring that may be contributing to a decrease or an increase in crime, for example, that gives an opportunity to investigate it a little bit further to see if possibly there are things contributing. But it does not mean that one thing caused the decline or the increase. It just means that there's an opportunity to explore it a little bit further. So then let's move on to the third story then, because this does deal with digital forensics. Yeah, we had a, a, another serial offender that we found a photograph of on the victim's phone and were able to use facial recognition to find a name online that led us to the, the guilty person. And that case is also still open. But that was very early on. In my digital forensics career, that was when I first set the lab up and started. So it was very exciting to me yeah. because I felt like, you know, I had to dig through this phone to find that photograph. And then luckily they were able to find a matching identity. Yeah, no, that's that's fascinating because there's so much that's on the phone, these phones nowadays. It's There's so much data there. It can be so many pictures that you're coming through. And I don't know, geez, it's been... 10, 15 years since I worked with facial recognition software. So I'm sure it's it's way better than it was 10, 15 years ago. But it still seems fascinating to me that you can take some a picture off a phone and do the facial recognition and come up with a hit. Right. And because it's not foolproof, obviously it's not mm-hmm. evidence of guilt or innocence. And so it just gives you a name and a lead to start with, and, and you go and find whoever that is, and you determine whether or not that that is the person you're looking for or not using other bits of evidence. Yeah, so this just opened the door to start talking to the person to see what he or she knows. Correct. All right. Now, you said it was one of your first ones. Did you have many much problems getting the the data off the phone? Well, not that particular phone but there are you know that's with digital forensics it's 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 a game of chance i I guess you could say to some degree that that some tools work better than other tools and your agency may not have access to these other tools in which case you build partnerships with other agencies who do have those tools and you go utilize their tools and when they need to they come utilize yours and that way you're not spending all the money at your agency to buy every tool You know, and and so some work better than others at certain things. And and sometimes, unfortunately, it just it's you get to the point where you might just not have 
a, a way of getting to evidence on a phone, or you might not get the evidence that you want. You'll get some evidence, but not the evidence that you want. It's really, it's really fascinating. It's something that's ever changing. You have to stay on top of it. You have to stay current. You have to be a lifelong learner because the technology changes so fast. And the different software companies are working to innovate as fast as they can. And then you have this great open source community of digital forensic investigators that are just providing free software that is amazing just because that is their purpose and mission is to help and give back and make the profession a better profession for everyone. Yeah. Do they have their own group or is there a is there an association that you're involved in? Yes, there's a the Discord digital forensics server. If you go to aboutdefer.com, there's an article there. It was started by Andrew Rathbun and some others to make communication more fluid between digital investigators globally, and it has just grown exponentially. We actually just self-published a book. I authored one chapter, and it's it's now available for free. Several different investigators on the Discord server participated, and everybody took a chapter and wrote their chapter. Mine was on setting up a law enforcement digital forensics lab. All right. Well, let's move on then. As you mentioned, I we've kind of teased it a little bit. You've recently left Clayton County PD because you're about to go overseas on a super secret analyst mission. And <laughs> I know we have to be careful on what we can talk about, but let's let's start with just this idea of of leaving the police department and even considering going on this endeavor because you've you've done this for for 3 years and you certainly have a thirst for knowledge and have gone through all the training and have just absorbed as much information as you possibly can. So what went into this decision to leave the de department and seek out this new role? Well, I, I can say that I was offered several positions and several jobs by different companies in digital forensics that paid double what I was making at the police department. And I turned them down because I really loved what I was doing and where I was and the team that I was working with. And I didn't want to travel and be away from my family as much as you would have to be for those jobs. Mm -hmm. And so I, when this one came, it was I wasn't looking for this opportunity. I got a phone call from a colleague who was leaving this position. And he asked, it was on, I think the 4th of July, I got a phone call and, and he said, would you be interested in this? And I felt I had to talk it over with my wife. It, it obviously it's, it's overseas contracting work. So it is more money and you know, that, that is a help, but that wouldn't be motivation enough to leave your family for a year. If you did not believe in the mission, if you didn't feel like you were going to be a part of something that was making the world a better place. And so after talking with my wife, she said, well, it's one year, you know, military wives do this. She wasn't with me when I was in the military, so she didn't have to go through the, the, the deployments and things of that nature. So, but she knows through her sister who has, her, her sisters who have had to go through deployments with their husband that, you know, it's just, in some cases, this is just the way that families live. 
and she knew that I would feel like my sense of purpose and my sense of fulfillment would be better served, I guess you could say, because the difference that I'll be making is going to have a global impact. Mm -hmm. So trying not to say more than that. (laughs) I get it. Now, when you were in the Navy, did you go overseas? I did. I did uh, several deployments to the Mediterranean and to the Persian Gulf. I was a part of Operation Desert Thunder Mm -hmm. and Desert Fox. We did a lot of work on the coast of Africa, evacuating people. It was a, honestly, I mean, it was one of the, it was the five best years of my life. Looking back, just as, you know, I'm, I'm still friends with everybody on Facebook. You know, we still talk and meet up. We do reunions in Virginia. So it was a great time. We were actually, my ship was the command ship for the TWA Flight 800 crash. And we picked up all of the wreckage and the bodies from that crash. We were anchored out there off the coast of Long Island for several months. It was a very solemn duty. Oh, I remember that. I, I think I had a college roommate that had uh, high school friends that were on that plane. I believe it's the same one that I'm thinking of. So yeah, that's terrible. Yeah. So I guess as you're preparing for this, you know, endeavor, and you know, it's it's exciting, it's nerve wracking, it's you're 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 it's an analyst duty that you that you're doing yeah it's it's only a year but what's going through your mind right now as you're preparing and what are you looking forward to i am excited to once again get to experience life among another culture mm-hmm. and in feeling like i am helping that culture with knowledge that i have been blessed to gain and while I'm sad to leave my family behind, especially because I just had my first grandchild. <laughs> yeah, my first grandson was born just last week. Oh, congratulations. I, it makes me, but at the same time, it makes me feel like I want to be the best human being I can and someone that he can be proud of. So I want to make sure that I am staying true to myself and, and living a life that gives me a sense of purpose and meaning in helping the community, and in, in, in this case, a, a global community, to make the world a better place. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I, I hope that one day he'll be able to be proud of his pop pop. <laughs> I'm sure he will be. All right. Well, <laughs> very good. Way well, hey, I wish you the best of luck in your endeavor here, and I do look forward to hearing back on how it all turned out next year. So there's a couple couple other memberships that you're a part of that I want to move on mm-hmm. to now, and you were a member of the Georgia Terrorism Information Project. And Correct. So, so for those that really aren't familiar with that, just say talk about that and then talk about your role with them. So the Georgia Bureau of Investigation operates the Georgia Terrorism Information Project. It's a GTIP, and they allow for two analysts from each agency in Georgia to be members of this information sharing network. I mean, it was set up after 9-11 for swift communication between agencies for any information relating to terrorism in their jurisdiction. You know, one of the things that we found out from 9-11 was that the, the weakness in communication, the siloing of information, 
all of those things were not causes, but they didn't allow us to do our job as effectively as we could if we had swift communication between agencies. And the GTIP program offers annual training to the analysts, instantaneous communication whenever there are bulletins or bolos or any sort of intelligence coming from federal agencies gets pushed out through GTIP to those analysts. The annual training we used, we did do in Savannah, you'd go in for a, a weekend and have several days of different analysis training. The last one I attended, we NW3C gave us three days of intelligence analysis training. It was great. All right. Good deal. And you're also part of the Justice Connect, and that's a kind of social media for law enforcement, right? Right. Yeah, and there are several communities on this, on Justice Connect, where sort of like the FBI Office of Partner Engagement, they have a community on Justice Connect where they share dates and information for their training. And in doing that, I thought, well, why don't I create a community because anyone can create a community within there for law enforcement analysts. And so I created the the law enforcement analyst network, Lean, and started inviting other analysts that I had known or heard of to participate in where we could share different information on training or publications that were being offered because there's a lot of free publications out there offered by Bureau of Justice and, and others. So that came together, obviously, because I'm Leaving the police department, I don't have access to Justice Connect anymore, so I left the admin controls with another analyst that worked at a neighboring agency from me, and, and she has access to allow people into the community and into, into invite people. Okay. And and we're hoping that we'll be able to put the link, get that link and put it in the show notes. So if folks are, are interested in joining Lean, they will be able to do so. Absolutely. All right. And the Southern Crime Analyst Roundtable, we also created a LinkedIn group for that. So if anybody wants to find me on LinkedIn, I can add those analysts to the the group if they're interested. Okay. And we'll put that link in the show notes as well. All right. Very good. Well, let's move on to personal interests. And you are an outdoorsy guy and you and your family (laughs) and and. So it seems like you are collecting quite the population of animals at your place. Chickens <laughs> yeah. and dogs and cats and goats, oh my. Yeah, my my wife, her dream is to one day have a sustainable farm and a petting zoo. <laughs> she just loves animals, and she loves her chickens. She loves baby goats. She loves alpaca, so I'm I'm going to have to get her some alpaca here pretty soon because she has been begging for a long time. Yes, we have we have several dogs and cats. I personally am a, a cat person. I love cats. I love my dogs, but I, I don't usually like other people's dogs. But yes, you know, it is Georgia. We, we live, you know, on a, a good piece of land and, you know, there's a lot of rural area in Georgia and and we have a, a small, I guess, three-acre farm, you would call it. But it's it's really just – it's not a farm. We don't grow anything except our own vegetable garden that we use. But mm-hmm. we have these animals really just so that my wife can have them as pets. We don't <laughs> eat the chickens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we do eat their eggs. Sorry yeah. if anyone is out there that doesn't like that. But um, we do eat their eggs. And uh, we're not the only ones. So I, we, we have – a snake that I had to relocate <laughs> that uh, was eating the eggs. Yeah. 
But I, we, we do love the outdoors. I'm actually talking to you from my camper just because it's quieter <laughs> here in the house. We, we have 10 kids. We have 10 kids. And my two of our oldest sons are, like I said, going into the military. Our oldest daughter just had our first grandchild. And the youngest is about to be 16. Oh, wow. With those 10 kids, we take them <laughs> all over. We, we, we love going to Disney. Wow. So that's 12 people going to Disney. Yeah, it's it's a good time though. We get we usually get like a three bedroom condo and everybody just, you know, makes do. Sometimes we might have to sleep on an air mattress, but it's a it's a good time. We love going down there and uh, What's your what's your favorite you know, part of Disney? Oh, well, I'm a Star Wars geek. Yeah. So, I love Hollywood Studios and I love the new, new Galaxy's Edge park that they added to it. Right. Anything Star Wars related, you know, I'm on board for. Right. But we love going camping, we love hiking and kayaking and being outdoors. We love the Georgia Mountains and we love being out on the lake or on the river. My son, he absolutely loves fishing. He would rather do anything. He he wouldn't want to do anything else but fish if he could just all day. <laughs> Very good. Our last segment of the show is Words to the World, and that's where I give the guest the last word. Jason, you can promote any idea that you wish. What are your words to the world? I would say live a meaningful life and a life that gives you a sense of purpose and one that you can be proud of. And that is the key to happiness. You know, I, I like to read the, the Stoic philosophy, Marcus Aurelius, Cicero, and, you know, some of the things he says is, you know, well, of course, I would just blank on the quote, but it's, you know, a, a life worth living is a life well lived. And if you're if you're not doing something that gives you a sense of purpose and a meaning and a sense of fulfillment, whatever it is, it doesn't have to be law enforcement. It doesn't have to be public safety at all. Whatever you're doing, if you're doing it because you enjoy it, what is the saying that if you love what you're doing, you have you will never work a day of your life? Yes. So find your purpose, find your meaning, and don't be afraid to step through that door. Very good. Well, I leave every guest with you, giving me just enough to talk bad about you later. <laughs> <laughs> but I do appreciate you being on the show, Jason. Thank you so much, and good luck, and you be safe. Thank you, Jason. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.